0: You need to be persistent, I would say, and you really need to believe in what you're doing, right? You need to you need to be hundred and you know, 50% convinced that you see an opportunity and you are you know well positioned, you're the right person to do it. And you know, when you have like the, the conviction, then it's easy to be persistent. I think if you have any doubts yourself, you know, that's, that's a different situation. Then, you know, you should perhaps think about it and, you know, maybe not spend the time on this or that. Making sure yourself that, you know, you, you see the opportunity, you have the right people, it is the right time. And, and then, you know, you have to be persistent. But then it's easier, as I said, to stick with it.
1: Ingrid Taiklan Akai is a medical doctor and founder of Hadin Ventures a European life science VC fund manager that invests in medical products that address unmet medical needs. In this episode, we'll learn more about Ingrid's journey from the medical field to finance, what makes a great VC investment in healthcare, and how founders can succeed in a heavily regulated and capital intensive industry. Let's hear from our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free, They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q U A R T R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Bin. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christophe Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Welcome back, everyone. I'm very excited to be joined by Ingrid. And Ingrid, thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Before diving into investing, etc., can you quickly talk about your upbringing and how you ended up in the doctor field?
0: Um, yeah, sure, I can do that. Um, I grew up like yourself in north of Norway in a small town called Uda which is a very pretty uh, little place. Well, especially the surroundings are very nice, I would say. And um, yeah, I spent a lot of time in those surroundings. I, uh, I had horses growing up, so I spent a lot of time um, riding around in the hills and enjoying the, enjoying the nature. Uh, and uh, yeah, I uh, went into the medical profession, um, come from a family with um, people in that space. So my mother was a, a GP in, uh, in Buda, and my father was a vet. Um, and at some point uh, I decided to pursue that track. Um, so I studied medicine, uh, actually in Germany, in, uh, in Hanover Hamburg, Hamburg Medical School. Uh, and after studying there, finishing uh, uh, my degree, I moved back to, to Norway and uh, started working in hospitals here. So I, uh, I worked mostly uh, within internal medicine and within surgery. And uh, then I moved to the UK, moved to, uh, to London, and, and I continued working um, in the medical fields. So I also worked there in, in hospitals, um, then within with surgery, gastrointestinal surgery.
1: In, in a different scenario or in a different life, could you have envisioned yourself going in the, in the vet space, focusing on animals? Or was it clear from day one that it's people I want to fix, not animals?
0: no that wasn't clear i loved animals you know as you can imagine growing up with uh, with my horses and we have all kinds of other animals um so i got a lot of exposure to animals with my my father being met um so i actually was planning to uh, to become a vet um however i i turned really allergic to animals
1: really so at some
0: point it was clear that that wasn't a great uh, match when it comes to profession
1: it, so it, I had it, to if you just add a question to, if you look at animals, right, and if you're trying to become a vet, right, because you have to, you have to take care of so many different animals at the same time, right? So, being a doctor, what are the parallels and what are the huge differences in terms of how you're trying to help an animal or a person, right?
0: Yeah, I think that the um, animals, you know, you can't talk to them. That's kind of a, <laughs> a big, a big limitation um however you have to talk a lot to the owners so it's sort of there are parallels it's all that it's without human interaction because the the owners uh, i would think need a quite a lot of support when an animal is is going through a a tough time so it's definitely differences and, and parallels
1: that's a great point but if you look at your, your medical career or your academic career, is it also fair to say that given that you said that you studied abroad and you went to London, is it fair to say that that you had that explorer gene has actually helped you a lot? And now you're doing investing, of course, but how important would you say it has been to go abroad a lot and not be afraid to get that international exposure?
0: I think that's that's really important. You know, Norway is a small country, so we need to have that willingness to interact with uh with people and, and countries and outside and you know growing up we we spent a lot of time abroad every holiday we spent abroad my parents studied abroad as well so it was uh it was something that was quite natural to you know not see big limitations in the border
1: but if you didn't so you you finished uh, your degrees and you started working so can you take us back to the moment where you thought about becoming an investor is it a thought that gradually comes or do you have like do you have a finance interest from an early age and then you see a huge opportunity can you just take us back to that moment where you started dabbling about this idea of going outside and maybe help in another way as an investor
0: yeah yeah so you know I've, I've always had this interest for for the business side you know and I can't really define one point when I said oh wow this looks interesting I want to spend time on it it was sort of a, a continuous um spectre from you know growing up um looked for business opportunities at some point you know me and my friend would you know gather some flowers in the garden and try to sell them to the neighbors um until sort of when i was studying and, and and working as a medical doctor um i had interest for investing so very small scale but you know doing things that had a low barrier to entry Um, investing in some listed companies, Um, also invest a little bit in real estate. So things that were sort of um, not particularly focused on the medical sector. Yes, when I invested in listed companies, those companies I looked at as well as others, Um, but but it was quite broad, this interest in in investing. Um, And living in London, I got more exposure to to the finance sector. And also sort of this cross-section between medical innovation and investing, which really venture capital is all about. And that was sort of a point where I where I realized that this kind of fitted perfectly with a range of my interests. You know, in, interest in the medical space, uh, interest in innovation, looking at new things, um, finance side um, and investing. So. So um, that was kind of a p- point where sort of the pieces just were falling into, into, into the places.
1: I mean, it's super interesting because if you look at your field, right, you're very high on purpose, right? You're saving life in like the most extreme sense. But then you have this concept of as a doctor, you're saving one and one person at a time and you can scale your hours. So is it also sort of like this notion of, okay, if I have a breakthrough in medicine, I can save millions of people because that can be a breakthrough taking out globally. Does that also come to play when thinking about where can I envision myself having the best impact?
0: Have the most impact? Yeah, absolutely. exactly how you describe it. You know, it's incredibly rewarding working as a medical doctor, being able to help people. But as you say, it's like helping one person at a time and you only have sort of a limited number of hours in the day. Um, whereas, you know, when you, when you get a new product onto the market, suddenly you can help thousands of people that are suffering. So that's absolutely spot on.
1: So, but, but if, if, you, if you think that many people will have, will have the same idea, what makes you able to take that transition? Is it, is it a combination of being in London and having, having exposure? Or is it also knowing the right people at the right time? Because working in this field seems very hard being a solo act. It seems like you need an incredible team because it's a big system you're trying to have an impact on. So can you describe the, uh, the importance of network, not necessarily the, the concept of networking, but having the right people that you can build something upon with?
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and those are obviously interconnected, you know, networking for getting to, to know the right people to, um, to work with um yeah absolutely it's uh, it's a team sport right it's uh, um there are so many different skills and capabilities that that you need and any one person is not going to have them all so having together the, the right team is um is incredibly incredibly important um yeah and just having sort of the the it's quite broad right so you you need to Figure out, you know, what you know and what don't you know and where can you sort of um, fill those gaps. If so I... your,
1: yeah, if you look at yourself from the outside, where did you sort of lack the experience or the talent and what team need, did you need to assemble to create this fund, essentially? Right.
0: Yeah. So uh, if going back to sort of the transition that I made when I first started exploring more the business side of of investing. Um, I, I started off quite broad. Um, so, when I did my MBA, I also got exposure to sort of other areas of the healthcare sector. Like, I worked for a period of time for for uh, Morgan Stanley, which is an investment bank, healthcare sector, and um, for. For Amgen, which is one of the largest biotech um, companies in the world. And, and also, in connection with the MBA, I did a project for uh, Warby Pincus, which is a healthcare private equity shop focused on sort, more sort of the, the, the latest stage. And that got sort of, um, it gave me a quite you know, broad impression of, of the different uh, players in the healthcare, healthcare space. Um, but it was as, as mentioned you know when I learned more about investing in medical innovation in the venture capital space, then I felt that you know now I can combine so many different things. And um, the first um, place I started working in, in venture capital was for um, a London-based f- uh, firm called Inventages. And this is a um, global venture capital firm investing you know, Broadly life science based um, globally, really, both in in, uh, developed countries, Europe, um, North America, but also in uh, in faraway places like China, Australia, New Zealand. And uh, at this team, we had a number of people with all with background on the investor side, you know, um, from medical, medical side, or, or from the science side. And there really you could see how from these different backgrounds, me from the medical side have a good understanding of of, um, how prescribers think about products and how this is being used in clinical practice. And then the people coming from the more sort of hardcore research and science part have a very good understanding of the basic principles the mechanism in action and how biological systems work. And how you know new treatments and new drugs um, are sort of interacting with, uh, with the body. So coming from you know from the research side and going into development and how things are being used in practice with clinical medicine, that is sort of the space where everything is is coming together. And you need people who both have sort of the deep science and people have the, the clinical understanding.
1: Uh, it's super interesting because if you think about it, like over the last years, we everybody knows who Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca is, right? And they also know the research departments who are sort of leading this work. And they also know how to get it sanctioned or get it away from the market, et cetera. So if you look at it from like a educational standpoint, it, sh- it should be pretty remarkable to see how much people know today about healthcare versus five years ago, Right. Because it's a huge system at play, with many different pros and cons all the time,
0: and it has such an impact on, on our lives, right? It was uh, such an important uh, factor that we got the vaccines out and to return to normal, which we are now slowly.
1: But but looking at it from like a doctor's point of view, so it has to be frustrating sometimes, you know. Obviously, there's a philosophical question about how to value a life in terms of can you buy in this medicine to use it, right? Because money is limited or capped at some point. And so there's a lot of trade-offs being made from both doctors and, of course, administrations and hospitals, right? But coming from the doctor's lenses, where do you feel like the biggest bottlenecks are in terms of getting the innovation and the products you need at the right time?
0: (sighs) Yeah, I think uh, it's a good point that you bring up, right? Because medical innovation is making progress and enabling treatment of new conditions. But obviously everything has a price and there is a limit to what healthcare systems can finance. It's just, uh, it's just reality. So that is something that obviously we, from an investment perspective, perspective, look at, at very carefully you know, what is feasible? What can you actually bring onto the market? And of course, from a you know, medical background and as a medical doctor, you want to treat everything that possibly can be treated. But everybody knows and understands the limitations of the system, right? And that you need to put the resources in where you get the most bank free bucks.
1: If you look at some of the examples that people can relate to, is it... Is it most examples related to cancer treatment, for example, the cost of that?
0: That is uh, that is a typical one because there's so much focus and research and development on improving cancer treatments, and we got sort of incremental improvements with, you know, which all are very important to bring the space forward. But there is always, uh, you know, this limitation of what can you charge for extending a life, you know, x number of days. So that is, uh, that, is, that is a trade-off. And, um, you know, hopefully new technology will enable better progress at, uh, at reasonable cost. That is sort of the, the goal of, uh, of what we're doing, right? Health economic benefits, which means benefits both for sort of the, the, the financing side of, of the healthcare systems as, as well as the patients.
1: This seems like the perfect bridge to introduce your fund. So, given that we have talked about healthcare systems, etc., can you tell us about the fund, the idea, and what problem the fund is trying to solve?
0: Yeah. So, um, um, Hayden Ventures is um, is now a pretty traditional life science VC firm headquartered in Oslo. Um, The background for Haitian Ventures was uh, going back to my days in London working for a a global life science VC firm. It sort of stood out that for me coming from the Nordics that there were great opportunities to set up a firm like this based in the Nordics. And that was was based on the constellation of, you know, we're having very high quality science in the region, in Norway and the rest of the Nordics. And also we have a booming startup scene for the last, you know, 10, 15 plus years. The startup scene has grown a lot. Um, And at the same time, there are very few specialist life science investors on the ground. And that sort of stood out as an opportunity. So I uh, moved back to Oslo and started working on setting up Hayden Ventures. And I was, you know, privileged to have a few of my colleagues from London joining me so the senior team now that we have we've known each other for for many years and you know back to what we talked about before people with complementary backgrounds um, and skills so you know i have um walter who's the other managing partner we have roger who's our partner based in stockholm running our stockholm office and florian um, our operating partner and we built the team you know so we're now um 14 people all together um, 10 on the investment side and, uh, and four in the, in the back office. And uh, um, basically what we're doing is that we're looking for untapped opportunities in areas of Europe where we see lots of, um, lots of upside and few specialist investors like ourselves um, focusing. Um, in particular in the Nordic region where, you know, here in Oslo we have our, our headquarter and also we have our Stockholm office. So we spend a lot of time on the Nordics. Um, but
1: not exclusively, we, we invest across Europe and a little bit outside of Europe as well. That's a perfect intro. So just a quick reflection, because often when I talk to people, I talk to people who actually have managed to start a fund, right? But there has to be many people who want to start a fund that never start a fund because they're not able to either raise the capital, get the right people on board, et cetera. If you had to be like, if you have to build an, an alternative world where you're trying to set up this fund what are the roadblocks that actually has a great potential to stop you from getting so far and setting up this fund? Is it the capital oh, side, the people side, or what's the biggest biggest hurdles you have to get over?
0: It's uh, it's a lot of hurdles. <laughs> it's, it's really it's, it's really difficult. I mean, there's no um, way around it. So I, I really think you need a lot of things falling into place. And I think Hayden Ventures was enabled by the fact that you know it was um right time the right place you know with a with the right set of people so you need to to check a lot of boxes um yeah and you know the you can say sort of the biggest hurdle is is raising funds convincing investors that's kind of like the very obvious one but that is obviously linked to everything else right it's you know and do you have the right opportunity set? Is it the right timing for it? And do you have the right people for it?
1: But, but is it also fair to say that, that there's more, there's maybe more to bring in terms of your mindset than just looking at the pieces to the puzzle? Because given that there are so many hurdles, you also need to be pretty stubborn in order to bother to jump over so many hurdles.
0: Yeah, I, I think, yeah, you need to be stubborn. Um, you need to be persistent, I would say, and you really need to believe in what you're doing, right? You need to you need to be hundred you know 50% convinced that you see an opportunity and you are you know well positioned you're the right person to do it and you know when you have like the the conviction then it's easy to be persistent i think if you have any doubts yourself you know that's that's a different situation then you know you should perhaps think about it and you know maybe not spend the time on this or that um, but I, I think, you know, just uh, making sure yourself that, you know, you, you see the opportunity, you have the right people, it is the right time, and, and then, you know, you have to be persistent. But then it's easier, as I said, to, to stick with it.
1: Definitely. So I, I just quickly checked your name, right? And it seems like it stems from, from a period where, is it fair to say that you, the process from Earth being just only gas in order to become a planet yeah. Uh, in in my, I don't. This is not my field, obviously, but uh, it seems like the hard part about creating life on Earth is that you needed oxygen, right? So if you take this analogy over to you as a company, what's the oxygen for the founders? How do you value that? Because in order to make something, if you, in order for a startup to survive, like a planet, it needs like oxygen, right? To have life on planet. So. How do you give oxygen to the founders and what's the oxygen? Is it money or the people or what is it?
0: Yeah, uh, I think, you know, same as the world needs a number of factors for life to be created, like oxygen being one of them, one important one. Um, it's the same for, for startups, right? So there are a number of factors, um, but obviously one very important one is, is capital, and uh, that's one of the things that uh, we provide as investors.
1: Because how do you assess the founders? Because I think maybe a very interesting part of this puzzle is that if you look at entrepreneurship, you typically envision, you know, this young person doing computer science at Stanford, et cetera. But in your pitch decks, I guess you have a broad range of people, right? Maybe more diverse even.
0: Yeah, uh, more diverse, more gray hairs, typically. (laughs) So, um, it's a bit lightly. Yeah, it's 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 slightly different. The the set of founders you see in our space are uh, uh, look different. You know, are typically more senior than what you see in the in the tech space. Um, many of them have spent you know years and years and years researching something, come up with a with a brilliant um, concept or idea that they patented, and and you know figure out now they want to commercialize the company and and um, and bring this to the market. So. Uh, Yeah, they're they're different. Um, And um, the team, when it develops, uh, as we talked about earlier, right? it's such a broad space. So it needs so many different capabilities and expertise. And at an early stage, these companies don't have all of that. Um, They start up small. But that's one of the things that uh, we as investors um, all store will help them with. Capital is one thing. The other thing is to help them. Um, build a team use our network to help them find the right people to to build the company so that they are prepared for new stages of development
1: but, but if you take the normal situations because obviously you give money to companies to succeed and to people running those companies so is it the um i, I know that not one example is the, the normal one but is it more a case of a founder coming in with a technology idea, maybe they have figured something out. And then you have to think, can this person uh, get this technology into life, into the hospitals, into the patients? And it's a question of regulation, right team, R&D, because this is capital intensive, very capital intensive in some cases. So just give us, can you just explain the the conversations you guys are having with the founders who want money from you guys? Because it's... a it's a very fascinating industry, right?
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it very much depends. So we um, we invest multi-stage. That means that we invest in very early stage companies, which can be, as you say, founder that has an idea that comes and discuss with us, um, and also in companies that are much more late stage, You know that already have put together a team, they know well uh, away doing their development work, et cetera. Um, so it, it it very much um, depends. but in any of these cases, obviously what we have to do is to figure out okay, what is the goal of this product right? What will it look like in the markets and go through everything to get to there. We work backwards like where, do we, where does where does this product fit in? Um, what is the market opportunity? what is the patient group? what is the competition, etc, and then work the way, from there and that is looking at you know does it have the IP that's needed to get it there Um, what would be the regulatory pathway to get it there what would be the design of the different clinical studies um, etc and um, uh, that that is a big piece of work that you know we spend time on Um, so our investment process typically takes many months right to getting to know the the company founders and, and also all of these aspects in terms of the where it's going and how to get there, basically.
1: What do you think are the most common reasons where you say no to people?
0: Um, well, there, there, there are a number of different reasons. I'm trying to think if there's some one common one or it, it, it really very much depends. Um, one thing is, you know, do we believe in the market opportunity in terms of, you know, what is the competition out there? Is this really as differentiated as the, as the founder thinks? Sometimes it's more on our side, you know, it's because we as a fund, we need to see a certain timeline before we can exit. Um, and we need to see that the capital requirements, as you just mentioned, are manageable. So these are sort of um, on our side, boxes that we need, we need to check. It doesn't mean that we don't like the opportunity it just doesn't fit with um, the way we invest our investment strategy and the way our fund is, um, is set up um, one thing that we we often see actually going back to sort of um, a common common uh, reason is that it's it's basically too early it's sort of too early in the research stage which means that we see the timelines and the, are too long for us and the risk is too high. So we want to see a bit more data, we need the product to mature a little bit before um, it fits our investment strategy.
1: But but that's super interesting to use as an example, because if we take, and I know you probably know some some cases we can use as a reference case, because if you look at sort of a biotech company, it can be like uh, a dead animal on the stock exchange for 10 years and then by two months it jumps up and becomes the best stock performing ever right so just explaining the timeline right so if you get a case uh, in your meeting is it like you're often saying this is maybe a 10 to 15 year time horizon and we have to return our capital in five years because maybe you can but people are listening maybe they don't don't understand the investment cycles right and how you need to return on, return on capital from your side as well
0: yeah, absolutely. And we have a, a typical, you know, um, setup of our fund where we are supposed to, within a certain uh, investment period, invest, exit, and return capital. So that's sort of the the structure of, uh, of our fund, and we need to sort of work within that uh, framework. So that is um, often the case that, you know, this interesting opportunity, but it's a little bit too early. And many of these opportunities we track for a long time, and they will come back to us, you know, after... A couple of years and that is the right stage for us to to um to engage so when we talk to founders it's rare that we say no thank you never ever it's more sort of you know um thank you for presenting this with us you know let's stay in touch and and let us know when you've come a little bit further
1: Is it possible to, to have you give some references into your portfolio companies and what problems they're solving and also maybe some best practices, or is it too early to say in your portfolio companies, which problems they are solving and how they are solving it?
0: Oh yeah, no, that's, it's, uh, all of them have a defined problem um, that we're solving. Um, So maybe take one investment that, um, that we made, and this is sort of actually within the um, digital health space, which is sort of a, a big trend, um, a Finnish company called uh, NeuroEvent Labs, um, and they are focused on epilepsy patients. And uh, what they're doing is that they are recording uh, epilepsy patients with video and audio. And uh, are then analyzing, you know, over a longer period of time, they can <laughs> analyze and um, annotate and classify seizures. And thereby create a, a much better picture of how an epilepsy patient is treated, how well that epilepsy patient is, is treated. And it's, it's sort of basically replacing um, or can assist healthcare professionals. Give a much broader picture um, in terms of um, following how, how the um, epilepsy develops or how, how a patient is treated. Uh, is it can be used both in hospitals um, and in the patient's home. That's one thing. A um, number of the companies, other companies we invested in are um, developing new drugs for, for diseases um, such as you know, oncology is, uh, is an indication that we have a few companies within we have a radiopharmaceutical company based here in Oslo called Aucoinvent, uh, and they are treating um, spreading of disease to the abdominal cavity. And they're using radiopharmaceutical that basically radiates the, um, uh, the metastasis cells.
1: I think it's so interesting as well, because when you're talking about these cases, if you especially uh, look at the digital cases, right, maybe having an assistant or machine learning or whatever, right, like COVID has to to be this like extremely massive tailwind that suddenly forces people to try new products, right? You see so many examples of like, almost you force people's hands to try this new technology. So Uh how's that been being in this space, seeing that people are forced to try to innovate?
0: yeah it's a it's a a very good point and that's one reason for why we're sort of turning our attention a little bit more to this space as well it's not a new space um it's been in development it's been an emerging space for for many many years but it's been slow to develop um you know healthcare systems are slow to change and and very conservative um but that's exactly that what we're seeing as well, that the pandemics are sort of forcing people onto digital platforms and they've been able to see that, yeah, it's actually working. So that is sort of uh, catalyzing now a few of, uh, um, of these opportunities that we see in the, in the digital health space. So it's um, definitely sort of um, an area that's growing.
1: If you, have, if you had to mention some problems you wish more people tried to solve, what are those problems?
0: are so many brilliant people working on so many problems. So it's, uh, it's rather the other way around. You know, sometimes we have founders coming in and say, hey, you know, I'm working on this and nobody else is, is doing it. And, you know, you go and Google a little bit and you say, there's actually quite a few people working on exactly that, uh, that problem. Um, what I'm seeing in the space is that a lot of resources, especially from the strategic side, have gone into oncology. So, oncology is a space that generally has been taking a lot of focus and attention, and there's uh, a lot of research going into that space. Um, and I see that some other indicators, some other areas, are getting a little bit more attention now, also from strategics, um, especially within sort of uh, neurology, for example. So, you know, the, the focus on the different indications are, are shifting a bit. Uh, I think that one sort of classical area that has been a bit neglected, though, I would say, is um, women's health. That is uh, an area that has um, received less attention than it should. Um, And that's something where we see that uh, more players are trying to focus a bit more to bring that area up to speed.
1: That's a brilliant point. And I also think if I can just add one, I think also if you look at mental health, right? It seems like it's been super conservative. So you, you're actually using the same medicine like during the world wars, right? And that doesn't seem like the best way going forward. But obviously you see in the US, you're you're starting to getting allowed to experiment. Like, like there's a lot of things coming up, right? And especially in the US, but that seems like a field which should have a massively overhaul in terms of what are the options, right?
0: And and that's actually falls within neurology. So that's uh, mental health within uh, neurology. That's, um, I I fully agree, that's uh, an area that hasn't had that much development, um, but is now getting more attention. I think one of the reasons for that is that it's it's harder to develop drugs in that space than it has been sort of within, for example, oncology. Um, and that has sort of made many players focus on lower hanging fruits. Let's put it that way. But there's definitely um, a huge potential there um, within neurology, mental health, neurodegenerative diseases, like for example, Alzheimer's, et huge potential.
1: But that's very fascinating. So is it just to try to translate a bit for people? So is it also so hard to develop um, medicine for your, let's say, mind, because we don't really understand the brain at all? And we also, then we need, it's hard to have placebo and environment, so it's very hard to move the needle knowing that you're moving the needle.
0: It's hard to measure. <laughs> you know, it's much easier to measure when you know the, what's going on, when you know the biology of it, and you can measure it with a blood test. It's much more black and white than uh, what many of the things are within neurology and, and also mental health space.
1: That's a great point. But just, you had another, um, you talked about some of the issues people are trying to solve. And it made me think that in the healthcare space, there are some, often we talk about that it's so bad that we have monopolies in technology. You have Google, you have Facebook, you have Amazon, which obviously are monopolies. But then um, it made me think that if you take a company like uh, Novo Nordisk in Denmark, right? They're solving out one single problem or they're solving more problems of course but their core business is solving one problem very well so is it also fair to say that in the healthcare industry there are some very big companies who are gigantic solving problems so in order to compete them out it's a very difficult task for a small founding team
0: Hmm. yeah that is definitely the case and that is why typically we don't invest in trying to out them rather than, you know, we take one part of the development, we get a product to development stage where they would be interesting for the strategics to take them over. Because, you know, certain areas, you know, bringing a new product from the bench to the market, there are very different stages of development, very different, you know, capabilities that's, that are needed within these different sort of stages. And some parts like you know innovation changing fast being flexible and agile that's in the early stages that's done best by small biotech companies i would say um whereas at the other end of it running like huge registrational trials and um market introduction bring onto the market commercializing that's done typically done much better by the last strategic uh, companies so you know best thing is to combine these two let the you know innovators do the innovation and let sort of the big players take care of that part so it's rare that uh, especially within biotech that we invest to bring with the assumption that we will bring this um onto the market ourselves
1: that's a great point so just a couple of final topics um have you met people that you think in in the wrong development could end up like elizabeth holmes or others because healthcare, or you're so scrutinized if you do some mistakes because it's a field where you have to be very careful about the due diligence right and it's Mm -hmm. not always one side it's the right side right so there's very much a nuanced industry as well right
0: it is um yeah and you know that's why we are specialists, you know, we we dig really deep in um, in the due diligence. So for us, it's really important to understand, you know, where are they in development? Because obviously the most of the comes to look at will be at an early stage, but to be very clear on what do they have at this point and what don't they have? Like, we need to understand that. I like, think one thing is, you know, when you pitch your company, um there's a focus on the the end product where you want to go um but for us it's really under, uh, important to understand you know at this point in time where are we exactly and where does the company need to to go going forward
1: definitely but it also it's an important point because you touched upon that uh women's health are neglected 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 or we should have more focus on women's health right and it it's, should be fair to say that we also should have a focus on more female founders. So I don't know how many female founders you see on your pitch decks, but maybe it's not over 50%, right?
0: It's definitely not over 50%. <laughs> um, we do see some, but not enough. Um, one thing that we are uh, doing is that we are very proactive in terms of trying to find those founders. Because one thing that we see is that female founders are less aggressive when it comes to chasing investors. than. Male that male founders are so male male founders are very good typically very good at you know knocking a door and showing us what they have and you know, getting that dialogue started early which is actually quite useful um, you know we reject obviously many more um, male founders than female founders as well because in terms of numbers um, but but getting that dialogue early is very important and that's useful for um, for any founder. Um, to get feedback on, you know, how does an investor see it? What can they do to, to get invest, investment next time they come and knock on the door? And female founders uh, we've seen are typically not as aggressive doing that. They're very good at preparing, you know, trying to have everything perfect before they come and knock on the door and sort of miss out on the opportunity on having that uh, early start uh, to to the conversation. So we try to be um, very proactive and, and find female investors, encourage them to contact us and be, you know, out there and vocal about wanting to see more female founders
1: but in your mind it is sort of a problem that is getting solved naturally or do you feel like you need to put a bit more forcing powers in order to get as many as you would like and as many as you think would want to start a business because we have to be honest that it's not a luxurious lifestyle being a founder it's super hard and you have to have crazy dedication, dedication around it right so it's a, it's a holistic puzzle in in one aspect, right?
0: I I think it's possible, but you're right. I mean, you have to uh, be a bit more proactive. And uh, we are doing what we can. And one of the things is that to get more female founders and also female founders funded, it's good to have more female investors. And that's one of the things we've been very proactive about having a balanced uh, team, investment team, so that we have uh, more people sitting on my side of the table um, that are women. I think that's, that's quite important. Um, and I think that helps and more and more firms are doing that. Um, and the other thing is that we also, when we work with our portfolio companies, we're working quite proactively with them, encouraging them to also think about it in, in their recruitment processes. So that the guests get the best candidates where they are male or female and not sort of the easiest, you know, obvious male candidates. And when we get better balance in, in the startup companies, you have more women getting experience and, and also then uh, more, more likely to at some point start their own companies.
1: If you're just trying to sort of have some final reflections on the conversation. So I guess many people call you for advice. They feel inspired they want to start a new fund or start a new company. Do you generalize some advice or do you always have to answer them specifically knowing what the person really is like and what they want in life or do you have any principles that you think you're taking advantage of and that you also can bring on to the next generation
0: yeah i i think uh going back to what we talked about earlier you know being a founder and whether you're a founder of a new fund or a new company i think the same principle applies that you need to yourself be very convinced about the potential of the of, of the opportunity that you're seeing potential of the opportunity and then you have to be convinced about yourself and your team why do you have um, an unfair advantage of leveraging this opportunity and, and that could be different things right it could be that you know if it's a startup company, maybe an, invent, an invention that's been patented or, you know, if it's a new business opportunity, you see it before everybody else and thereby have a head start. Um, you know, there are different things for why you why you, uh, in this opportunity can leverage this opportunity better than anybody else. But seeing that opportunity, why why you and the right timing of it and when you're like 100% convinced yourself then you can really just, you know, put all your attention and dedication and, you know, just stick with it, be persistent.
1: How do you think, I mean, that's a perfect ending, but just to add on, how do you think you will solve that confidence piece? Because maybe that's the hardest piece to solve. If you have the knowledge, you also need the confidence to act on that knowledge.
0: You just, I think you need it. If, if you don't, it's going to be very hard. You know? So I think, if you're convinced and you see that you're convinced, you have the confidence for it, then, then you can throw yourself into it. Without that confidence, you know, it's, it's going to be very difficult. Both sticking with it and convincing others, you know, you need to convince others. And whether it's, you know, getting people, the best people to join your team, investors, etc. cetera. Um, if you don't believe in it 100% yourself and have the confidence to believe in it, then it's difficult.
1: That's a perfect uh, ending, Ingrid. Thank you so much for taking the time.
0: My pleasure. Thank you
1: if you like this episode and the content we create please make sure to check out our newsletter called the bin letter more information is in the show notes if you want to watch this episode as well please head over to our youtube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel this episode was produced by William Fransen